Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Colin Thubrin to the show. Travel writer and novelist, Colin has written countless books that bring faraway sites and peoples to English-speaking readers, many of which covered regions in China, Russia, Central Asia, and elsewhere on the Asian continent. Today, we're going to talk about the Amur River between Russia and China, Colin's latest book published by Harper late last year. In the Amur River, Colin traces the path of the Amur River from its origins in Mongolia to its endpoint along the Pacific Ocean. Colin is an acclaimed travel writer and novelist and the winner of many prizes and awards. His first books were about the Middle East, Damascus, Lebanon, and Cyprus. But later, he was drawn to the lands which he says his generation was brought to fear, the Soviet Union and communist China. In 1982, traveled by car into the Soviet Union, as you're described in Among the Russians. From these early experiences, developed his classic travel books, Behind the Wall, The Lost Heart of Asia, in Siberia, Shadow of the Silk Road, and to a mountain in Tibet. Today, Colin and I will talk about the Amur and what he saw as he traveled along its banks. We'll also talk about what it means to be a travel writer in today's world, which has undergone a recent and rapid expansion, an even more recent and even more rapid collapse of travel over the past few years. So, Colin, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It really is a great honor for me. Maybe let's start with kind of a very, perhaps a very basic question, which is what brought you to the Amur River in the first place? It's always a sense of curiosity that drives me to go to a place. Um, always somewhere I feel that I don't know or understand. Um, so it was that. And of course, the juxtaposition of China and Russia across the river um, fascinated me. Uh, spent, I suppose, most of my working life writing about uh, the old Soviet Union, now uh, Russia um, and, and China. So um, there was a, a tremendous curiosity to know how these two cultures um, were going to mix. That was, or, or not, that was one of the, uh, one of the motives. And of course, there's a, always a slightly um, juvenile sense of adventure to me, even though I'm old now, uh, and the idea of following a river from its remote source in Mongolia to the Pacific was fascinating. And here's a river that um, is virtually unknown in the West. It's astonishing since it's the 10th longest river in the world. Um, and so all that um, built into a tremendous sense of curiosity and, um, and uh, enthusiasm. The Amur does kind of get neglected, doesn't it? I mean, both in Russia and in China. I mean, the Russia has the Volga and China has the, the Yangtze and the Yellow Rivers. And yet the Amur, despite being one of the world's longest rivers, as you know, it kind of gets lost in our discussions of these great rivers. It does. And uh, I think one of the reasons, the obvious reasons, is that it's a border. Um, it mm. doesn't quite belong to anybody, um, whatever the Russians and Chinese may feel. Um, you look at most of the great rivers of the world, you know, like, the, say, the Mississippi or the Indus or the, um, the indeed, the Yangtze or the Yellow River, um, the Irrawaddy, and they nourish their nation's heart. Um, they seem to almost be commensurate with the nation 
um, which encloses them. But the amour uh, does no such thing. It, it's separate. And um, it, it, it seems to be a river that nobody um, can uh, actually claim real ownership of um, without contestation. So we're going to spend a lot of our conversation talking about Russia and China, but I don't want to neglect Mongolia, which is where your journey starts. Um, what is that part of the Amur River like? Well, it's not like the Mongolia that um, we normally think of as Mongolia, which is great steppe land, um, uh, very sparsely populated, of course, but basically um, a, a, a huge um, um, plain land, a rolling, rolling the terrain of plains. But suddenly in this northeastern part, um, which is called the, the Kente, strictly pre um, protected area, the Mongolians call it, uh, it's mountainous and it's very marshy and nobody lives there. It's forbidden. It's for about 5,000 square miles. It's the border uh, with, China, with Russia. And um, it's not only for that, perhaps, that it's a a protected area, but because it was once sacred to Mongolian royalty, um, to Genghis Khan and his um, descendants. So it has a special place in the Mongolian mind. And so you enter it, um, there are no roads, there are no people, um, you have to go in by horse, um, as I did uh, with a couple of tough horsemen and a Mongolian guide to try to seek out the source of the Onon, as they call it here, the Holy Mother Onon, they regard it as semi-sacred. Um, and it's there um, that um, you, that we got into trouble because it's marshland and there had been heavy rains that year, heavy monsoons. And so it was, much of it was close to impossible. So it's not the Mongolia you think of. And all that part is also occupied by people called Buryat, um, who are, well, they have their um, homeland at the moment in, in Russia, southern Russia, but they're a very small part of the present Mongolian population in Mongolia, perhaps 2%, and they're rather unusual. Uh, they fled south of these over the um, Russian-Mongolian border, the Soviet-Mongolian border, as it were, to escape the civil war, um, it, the Russian civil war. So their history is unusual for Mongolia. So this is, this is in sum what that land is like, uh, mountain and marsh rather than plain. Also kind of early on your trip, you, you and your guide stumble upon a set of military exercises along the border. I wonder if you might talk about that experience. Uh, this was strange and completely unexpected to me. I hadn't planned for it, I couldn't have. Um, it was within Siberia, um, not that far from uh, the, the Chinese border, um, but it was a, it was a, the largest military exercise, I think, but um, um, jointly with Russia and China, the largest one for 40 years, over 300,000 troops assembled um, for what we in the West assumed to be a, a warning to the West of what Russia and China combined might be, might do. Um, I, I, I didn't even know it was happening. I was staying in a monastery 
and I all night these armored vehicles are passing the streets of the monastic guest house. When I woke in the morning, the valleys around were pouring out smoke um, for this these maneuvers. Um, the monk said, um, "If you don't get out, you're going to be uh, <laughs> they, they, they hear you your English that you'll be put in prison." Um, which I would have been, it was would seem to have been um, much too big a fluke that I had just arrived there by chance. Anyway, I eventually got out in a beaten up old taxi, which managed to avoid the, um, <laughs> avoid the checkpoints. And curious enough, we found ourselves um, driving through the, both the Russian and Chinese camps. Uh, the Russian camp um, was very orderly with the military vehicles all lined up in front um, beyond the Chinese camp, just a canvas strung over old poles where the soldiers have been sheltering and not a single sentry um, to stop us. Nobody challenged us. Um, there were meant to be a good 500 mounted military police patrolling this area. We never saw any of them and we simply went free on the other side. Um, it's an interesting exercise, this, because in the West, we all assume, people all assume, that this was a warning. Um, it occurred to me, perhaps independently, that with the Russian nervousness about the huge Chinese population and the uh, burgeoning Chinese success in economy, that um, it might just have been actually a Russian warning to China, because the Russian troops there um, were well over 300,000. The Chinese were just, as I remember, about 3,000, a tiny contingent and an even smaller Mongolian contingent. And it might just have been that this was also a reminder to the Chinese of the Russian arms that could be assembled on that border should things turn ugly between those two, for the moment, so-called friends. That's a great segue to my next question. Um, I mean, obviously, you think, you think from those looking from outside, uh, those who maybe quite aren't as aware of the history, et cetera, that they always think, you know, China and Russia are, are close friends due to ties stretching back to the Soviet era and, you know, jointly standing against the West, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyone who looks at this relationship more deeply, whether if it's, you know, kind of on the ground work like yours or a study of Chinese-Russian relations stretching back decades, the relationship is, for lack of a better term, much more complex and seen with a lot more skepticism of either side than outside observers might think. When you were actually kind of on the ground and, and talking to Russians and Chinese people on the ground, what did you uncover in terms of what each side thought of the other? Well, something very different um, from the official goodwill between Beijing and Moscow. Um, and the Amur is very far from Moscow geographically and pretty far from Beijing. And I think what struck me most was a kind of incompatibility between these two cultures. It's not just that they largely couldn't speak with one another um, and very few um, uh, Chinese can speak Russian um, or vice versa, uh, Russians learning Mandarin. Uh, there are some, um, particularly young, but um, on the whole, there was very little communication. And now that the ruble is so low against the Chinese yuan, um, 
the motives for Chinese to cross into China, into Russia and vice versa are much less. Um, I, I saw very little communication there. But I think, um, you know, talking to, in my very faulty Mandarin, I have to say, and, um, and rather poor Russian, but talking to um, people, just ordinary people in the markets on the side, one got an impression of, um, to some extent, uh, suspicion um, and sometimes uh, resentment. Um, in particular, the Russians are, find themselves rather bewildered, I think, by the sudden dominance of China, because there's always been a sense of, I mean, for a long time, a, a sense of superiority um, of the Russians towards the Chinese. Um, even in the Soviet period, they were their younger brothers. They, they were the junior members in a, in a Marxist endeavor. And the Chinese um, themselves, um, I found often they talked about the Russians as if they were um, uncouth. Um, the hairy ones, as they call them. And uh, of course, the Russians acknowledge how hardworking the Chinese are. Um, they, um, they, they can see, see it happening in the, in the markets of places like Blagoboshensk or, or, or Khabarovsk. And so there's a kind of, um, a, a kind of feeling of alarm to some extent among some Russian people um, because of the enormous imbalance of population uh, in the provinces uh, along the Amur on the Russian side. They're just sort of two or three million um, Russians and they're depleting. On the Chinese side, it's well over hundred million. And so one can understand the unease that Russians feel and the sense that they don't quite understand um, these people it's a, it's a big, to my mind, a big um, cultural problem b between them that, uh, that there could be, hardly could be two cultures less alike. And you, you kind of briefly talked about this, about kind of the, the difference in economic trajectories between Russia and China. I mean, Russia has, you know, to kind of state it plainly, kind of at best gone through kind of economic stagnation over the past couple of decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, whereas China has obviously grown by an astounding measure. Um, I think that's shown in the twin cities of Blagoshevansk and Peihe, where Peihe has tall skyscrapers. I think you note Chinese tourists will cross the river into Russia and then immediately turn around and take photos of the Peihe skyline from across yeah. the river. Um, and I guess I wonder if you might go a little bit more into kind of how the Russians and Chinese kind of understand their divergence in economic status. Well, of course, um, it's not long ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that the Russians would cross in big numbers to Hecha, um and go into the markets there and buy what to them were still fairly cheap Chinese products. Um, you go to the markets of Heha now and they're locked up. Um, there's hardly anybody there. And the thousands or hundreds of thousands sometimes um, overall Russians that used to visit um, can't afford to do it anymore. So um, the understanding of their financial 
um, difference. I think this is what um, bewilders some uh, Russians. And there's always a feeling here that they've been left behind, abandoned by Moscow. Um, there's a, a Russian sense that, um, that, they're, uh, that they're neglected. Um, and the, indeed the population in this part of Russia is declining. Uh, people are wanting to get out. And with um, the old collapse of the Soviet collective farms, of course, um, that process was exacerbated because the collective farms, um, whatever their shortcomings, were, um, were institutions that provided not only for uh, basic agricultural goods, but um, they supplied, you know, they kept up the roads, they supplied education and creches and so on, and all that went. Um, so it exacerbated the influx of villages, Russian villages, into the Russian towns. And then the Russian towns, um, often the people there really wanting to move, um, move west um, into European Russia. And latterly, um, a few, at any rate, are looking to China as a more, uh, more possible um, profitable place to be working, um, although never easy. So the financial position, the, the Chinese um, themselves uh, look across the river and don't see, I think, the opportunities that they did. Um, there was a time uh, not long ago, I suppose, maybe again, 10, 15 years ago, when the Chinese enterprises on the Russian side were proliferating um, and they still exist. But even in farming, I found uh, there was um, the farms that had once flourished under the Chinese uh, were not doing well when I visited them on the Russian side. So it, the, the, there's a sort of stagnation um, that is visible to somebody, uh, somebody traveling in this area as opposed to what we know politically, uh, the Russian or the Chinese investment in Russia in the gas, the oil, the timber, um, that's less visible, but just as important, of course. Kind of sticking on the economics point, but maybe bringing it down to a personal level and the people you actually meet on your trip. Um, many people you meet on your journey, and especially those who kind of take it upon themselves to guide you around, seem to be, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a bit down on their luck, um, which doesn't mean that they're upset by it. In fact, some of many of them seem to be quite energetic and striving to make a better life for themselves. But you can tell that they've had, they may have seen better times in the past, and they're not doing as well as they might have used to be. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about, about that, about the people you met, and how they understood how their world was changing. Yes, well, um, it's a little bit, um, as I mentioned, the, there's a feeling um, in, in general that um, the whole area is down on its luck. Um, and uh, the looking of Russians, Russians to, to Moscow, um, among the more sophisticated people I talked to at least, um, almost always involved a, um, a grumble about uh, corruption. Uh, corruption in Moscow, corruption among anybody, amongst any of those who were um, in control of things. Uh, I think to some extent, 
that feeling of being down on your luck. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it can be that so many people feel they're outsiders um, in any society and culture, and those things get exacerbated um, if the economy is in decline. Even on the Chinese side, these Chinese cities that sprang up across the Amur, along the Amur, um, all, all quite recent. Um, uh, now, maybe the feeling is of less, um, less energy there. Um, the man, the main Chinese who I knew, who guided me along much of the river, was perhaps classic of his generation of Chinese. Um, he was perhaps um, in his 50s. Um, he had fallen a victim to the one-child system and had only got a single daughter who was living far away. He was worried about his old age. Um, he had seen his father persecuted during the Cultural Revolution uh, and so on. And this was a, a sort of a, a generation thing, I think, that those who are... Um, rather older, uh, look back um, to the past occasionally with a nostalgia for Maoism. They thought things were more ordered, older people were more respected perhaps in the Mao period. Um, whatever these fantasies, there was a sense that the world was running away from them, um, as indeed it is um, in, uh, in, in almost every way. And so um, I got a sense that um, that this great onrush of energy that the, uh, that the Chinese had felt uh, was beginning to slow down there. And several people, um, different Chinese, said to me, oh, well, you know, it's all very well for those in the South, in Shenzhen, in Shanghai, um, that's where the energy is now. And we have been abandoned. And not exactly abandoned, but um, we're now... Um, not where it's at, as it were. Hecha, um, even, which seems to the Russians looking across the river to be rather glamorous and futuristic. Um, when you go there, you find, find a lot of people feeling, well, um, perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps uh, life is better elsewhere. There was always a feeling that down in the south is where the real energy of the economy is. I have one more question about about your book, and then we'll kind of move on to some other questions. Um, but so almost everyone you meet on your trip is kind of struck by your status as a foreigner, kind of wandering around this quote unquote remote region. Um, it means you run afoul of official bureaucracy from time to time. A lot of police who kind of ask somewhat bluntly what you're doing there. Um, but of course, those that live along the border would, in theory, kind of see foreigners all the time, right? I mean, the Russians would see the Chinese, Chinese would see the, see the Russians. I guess, do you get a sense of kind of what the international or kind of global awareness of those that live along the Amur were um, and how they reacted to seeing an Englishman kind of walking around the border? Uh, I think global awareness is um, probably rather low, I have to say, in this remote area. Um, they they think of a, a global world or more a more integrated or more international world as definitely being somewhere else, and of course they see fewer foreigners than they did. Uh, the Russians um, on on their side 
uh, uh, don't see as many Chinese, I think, as they once did. They see more Central Asians even in the market. Uh, they do see Chinese there, um, but they're rather um, exclusive to the market areas, I found. Um, that's where they work, and um, they're often that is where they live. And so the idea that you know you'll bump into Russians or into Chinese on the Russian side all the time is, I think, a little out of date. Um, even on the building sites, um, they're not necessarily uh, very prominent. Um, similarly, on the Chinese side, as I say, the Russians don't go as they did um, because of the uh, the ruble can simply buy nothing over there. Um, as for me, um, looking at me, I was a little bit of a, a, an oddity. Uh, the Chinese always, uh, virtually always assumed that I was Russian. And when I was in some place where um, it was almost unknown for a foreigner to be, um, in other words, outside a city and along the banks of the uh, of the Amur River, or the um, th this was um, this was something that they just um, couldn't quite um, cope with. I think they would stare at me, um, and particularly if you're traveling in a bus, um, they would attract attention um, of their children to me. You know, this is a funny foreigner, and this is a Russian, um, and so uh, the the police. Really, because I was in, I, I was in such a um, such remote parts of the country. Uh, simply thought they would have to take notice of me and have to take me in, as it were, for questioning, just because I was foreign. Even if they had nothing really to to accuse me of, it happened classically in a little place called Skhetensk on the Amur River, where um, I, I got um, for three, four, five hours. I was questioned quite angrily um, by uh, by the police and threatened that I would be sent back to Chita, the local capital. And there they said, you will be sent back to London um, because you, in a way, just shouldn't be here. You've got the wrong visa or whatever. And so, uh, and even on the Chinese side, um, when I was in a remotish um, town in China where they'd never, I'd hardly seen foreigner, they, um, the panicky hotel owner brought in the police um, because he just didn't know whether he was allowed to um, entertain foreigners or whether I should be there at all. And the police um, very sort of politely um, took my data and then went off, uh, not knowing quite what to do with me. I, I seemed, because of my age, you know, I was in my 80th year, um, this seemed peculiar too. And um, and my speaking rather bad language, um, that bad Russian and even worse Mandarin. And um, by that time I was limping badly because I'd fallen off the horse in Mongolia and broken my ankle fibula. So altogether, I was not the usual um, sort of foreign businessman that anybody's expecting to see. So um, the, the question of their reaction to me was um, a very, uh, <laughs> one that was replicated in some ways on, on both sides of the river. So this isn't your first time to Russia, China, or Central Asia. You've written 
many books throughout on throughout the region. But was this trip to the Amur River different from your previous trips elsewhere in Asia? Um, something about the time or the place or the or where these two countries are at um, in the 21st century. Was there anything about this trip that was different from your previous trips um, around Asia? The difference was juxtaposition, I think, that Russia and China were here so close together, um, literally within uh, a few hundred yards of one another in the case of Blagoveshensk and Khekha. So um, that there was a sort of a stark interest for me in how they communicated or failed to. I can't say that uh, my experiences of people in themselves um, were different. I didn't find that the Chinese uh, were radically different from Chinese that I'd known in other parts of the country. Uh, similarly, the Russians, um, although these were Siberians, um, and some of whom had been in that area probably for many generations, I couldn't say that on the whole, they struck me as being um, very different. It was the strangeness of the situation um, that was different, um, well, for some of them, and certainly for me, that you could see how they were um, interacting or failing to interact. So I'd like to end with talking about travel writing and the travel writer. Um, and let's first talk about kind of travel writing as a genre. Um, what do you see as the role of travel writing? Um, I mentioned in my intro, kind of we, we've seen both a rapid expansion than an even more rapid collapse of travel recently. Um, expansion in the sense that now, um, before the pandemic, most people could travel all over the world. It wasn't hard to hop on a plane and see a new place. Um, but now, of course, with COVID, uh, travel has almost completely gone. Um, I certainly haven't left uh, my home city for the past, oh, God, I think three years now. Um, so I haven't done any traveling myself. Um, but how do you see the kind of, kind of the, the role of travel writing um, as people have gone through the expansion and then kind of even more rapid collapse of global travel? I think the fact that travel has become more difficult uh, makes travel writing uh, more valuable. In a way, um, travel writing's had a, quite a bad press, um, at least in the United Kingdom, where I come from, in England, um, for quite a few years. Um, it's always rather thought of as a, a, a post-colonial enterprise, you know, here, um, typically for me, you know, a single white male, privately educated, um, going into a country um, that is um, often, or into a, uh, uh, an environment at any rate that is often quite poor and um, noting what he feels about it. it it's a scenario for arrogance um, and particularly was very much so in the past. So there's always been a feeling, um, I think, that or, or for many several decades that travel writing is now uh, an old fashioned genre, um, that it belongs in the age of exploration. And, um, and, and of empire. Well, that I, I think has already changed a great deal in the younger travel writers that I know. And very few, um, very few of those writers are 
um, treating travel, I think, as um, exploration, um, which it can't be after all the, <laughs> the Earth's been photographed by a satellite um, uh, to the square inch. You can't, um, you can't uncover some new place per se. But um, it seems to me that what is important is that um, that a travel book gives a gives a um, a sense to the reader of what a country is like, uh, not seen through the prism of, a, of an academic, um, not saying oh it is like this, this culture is like that, that country is this way. It's saying this is how it seemed to me, um, so that the travel writer in a way is putting himself on the line, if you like, as being a character in his own narrative, that first person singular, I did that, I felt that, I thought this. Um, so it's a rather different, it's a different genre and has a, the potential of, I mean, ideally, of giving the reader a sense of what a country is like, um, a sort of sensuous sense, what its smells are like, what its conversations are like. Um, and of course, one's own, um, in intercommunication uh, with, with the people, the landscape, the history. It can contain anything or everything. And above all, I think it should give or can give a sense of um, what the sort of geist, um, what the feeling is like to be, say, you know, sitting in a cafe in Baghdad. And if um, anybody in the White House or in 10 Downing Street had ever sat in a cafe in Baghdad for a few weeks, they might have been less cavalier about invading Iraq. Um, it, those sort of communications are, are precious, I think, in a travel book, if it, if it can give that sort of feeling. So um, although COVID, of course, has present, prevented travel for now for so long, um, it's, I think, only made the genre of travel writing and indeed the, the actual business of traveling, by which I don't mean tourism, I mean traveling um, with a person um, generating their own interests and their own itinerary. Um, it's only made that more, more special uh, and more necessary. And it, it sounds like kind of it's, it's turning the the is treating the the subjectivity of travel writing, I guess, um, treating it as as a feature rather than a bug. Really embracing the experiences of the travel writer and reading about what the writer experienced on their journey. And I think this leads me to my last question, um, which is again the idea of the travel writer. And you've kind of already hinted at this or talked about this kind of like what the role of that person is. Um, and I guess I might want to end with just your views on. The role, and I would also say the responsibility of the travel writer, um, and how that might evolve in the years to come. It's an interesting question and, and a fraught one, uh, because um, travel writing, to my mind, has um, has sort of dispersed out of this mm. central genre, which was um, the obvious genre when I was um, starting travel writing in the 1960s um, of of the lone traveler going off and exploring. Um, it's become much more integrated with um, ecological concerns, for instance, um, with some uh, environmental quest, um, often also with some quite quirky um, personal 
um, I mean, personal to the travel writer um, notion of, of, of why, why they're traveling somewhere. So you get, a, um, you get both a greater subjectivity and a greater um, awareness, I think, of, of the wider world. Um, in many of these books. It, it has also sort of melded into nature writing a great deal, um, particularly in the UK here, um, where there's a, a feeling that, um, that the, it's not just the environment, but that nature in itself is important and worth recording. The, the idea, of course, that um, the world is getting smaller has obsessed uh, the travel book, that it's more accessible now, you can find it all online, um, you don't have to travel anywhere really, but of course you do, uh, nothing replaces the personal involvement in a country. So um, I, I think that um, the, uh, how to say it, the idea that um, travel writing is, is dead or has been superannuated um, is quite wrong. Uh, it's simply changing its complexion and adapting. It's an infinitely adaptable mode, uh, to my way of thinking, and, and has a, a, a very ancient past going back to Homer and Ulysses and, uh, and a future of, um, of, of responsibility. You ask what the responsibility of the travel writer is. And to my mind, again, it's maybe a little old-fashioned, but it is, above all, to truth, um, to trying to um, convey the feel of a place um, as you found it and saw it. You know that it may not be, um, it may not be the, the truth of the next writer that comes along. And you know, too, that the moment you're in a country, it's this, this fleeting moment. Um, this is how this place was as you experienced it at one particular time. In a year's time, um, it will be different and the travel writer will be different too. In a way, um, <coughs> you have to acknowledge that travel writing is one culture looking at another. Um, it's not, um, uh, it, it can never be, uh, or shouldn't ever think of itself in some um, highfalutin way as being a, a perfect record. There can be no such thing. Um, it's, um, it's highly subjective and um, all the time, however much you may feel or want to leave your own culture behind you, um, of course you can't do it. So with that, thank you listener interview with Colin Thubrin, author of The Amur River Between Russia and China. Colin, I do actually have one more question for you, um, which is, uh, what's next for you? What do you what do you think your next project may be? Well, I've usually written novels between the travel books. And so I think I will, my next project will be a novel. Um, the novels come from very different places in my <laughs> psyche from the travel books. Travel books have about fascination with something uh, that's outside you and far away. Uh, the novels are more introverted and usually at least sparked by something that's changed um, in one's own way of thinking or life um, in the, during the time you've been writing the previous book was a travel book, um, which probably takes four years. 
So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRIGordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to hvbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The ARE podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news news coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Colin, for joining me today. Thank you.